Soprano, alto, tenor, and baritone are the three most common types of saxophone, but there's also sopranino, bass, and contrabass. And of course, there's saxello, manzello, allochrome, stritch, the C melody saxophone. Actually, there's kind of a lot of types of saxophone. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, here to talk about music with lots of saxophone, music with just a little saxophone, and uh, nope, I'm looking here and those are the only two types of music. This is a 100% listener-supported show, and look, you know how everything you love is being bought by super rich people and then totally destroyed? Well, thanks to my patrons, that'll never happen to Strong Songs, so go to patreon.com slash strongsongs or find a link for donations in the show notes. On this episode, oh man, we're talking about one of my favorite bands ever, a band where the horn section is every bit as important as the rhythm section, which is honestly how it should always be. It's a public health announcement about a very funky new cure, so let's go to the clinic, roll up our sleeves, and get it done. You know what? There's no need for preamble. I don't really have a whole lot to say about this. I just want to get into the music, and this band speaks for itself, so let them have it, guys. All right, everybody. It's time to talk about one of the funkiest bands to ever cut a record or take the stage together. What do you get when you combine an unstoppable rhythm section, world-famous horns, alternatingly silly and extremely wise lyrics? Why, of course, you get Tower of Power. What song are we going to talk about? Well, I'll let them tell you. So vaccination all across the nation. That's right, we're going to avoid all unfunky diseases by getting ourselves not a measles vaccination, not a COVID vaccination. We're going to go on down to the health clinic and we're going to get ourselves a soul vaccination. This is going to be fun. Tower of Power is a band that I have loved ever since music school when my friends and I convinced the faculty to let us make a Tower of Power ensemble and we spent a semester playing T.O.P. tunes for school credit. I played tenor sax in that band and came to appreciate just how fun this band is, especially for horn players because the horn section, those famous Tower of Power horns, plays such an important role in the overall sound and groove of the band. I'd heard Tower of Power before for school, but it took getting deep into their music with a bunch of my much hipper friends who were really, really into Tower of Power for me to fully understand just how ridiculously good, how tight and entertaining this band is. We did all the hits from What Is Hip. to Squib Cakes. To the surprisingly accurate and totally burning peon to non-renewable energy sources, only so much oil in the ground. (laughs) 
I mean, alternate sources of power must be found because there really is only so much oil in the ground. I also found their helpful advice song, Don't Change Horses, to be surprisingly accurate and useful. We played the rare ballad and radio hits, So Very Hard to Go. You and As well as their slightly more dated 1980s tribute to credit cards, which is called Credit. This is a very silly song, but it grooves so hard. <laughs> I guess that's true of a lot of Tower of Power songs. And of course, in addition to those songs and many others, we played the show-stopping collision of horns and rhythms that is Soul Vaccination. Written by Doc Kupka and Emilio Castillo for Tower of Power's self-titled 1973 album, Soul Vaccination features a classic T.O.P. lineup, Lenny Williams on lead vocals, and the T.O.P. horns, featuring Castillo and Kupka on second tenor and Barry sax respectively, a young Lenny Pickett on lead tenor sax, Mick Gillette and Greg Adams on trumpet, and of course, one of the great rhythm sections of all time, with Bruce Conti on guitar, Brent Byers on bongo and conga drums, all layered over the legendary combination of bassist Francis Rocco Prestia and drummer Dave Garibaldi. Now, okay, that was a lot of names that I just threw at you. And it's true, Tower of Power has always been a big band with a lot of musicians in it. The thing is, it's also a band where each individual player really matters, and each one plays a role in the group's musical identity. And I should mention here that there's one more crucial member of this era of the band, organist Chester Thompson, who is on this record, but as best as I can tell, didn't play on this tune. He is a mother, though. He is a really heavy player. So um, shout out to Chester Thompson. I would have loved to feature you, but... You didn't play on soul vaccination, so so it goes. For this episode, I really want to emphasize the strength of Tower of Power's arranging and their ridiculous time. Each player played so locked in with one another, it kind of breaks down the typical barrier between a horn section and a rhythm section and turns everyone into kind of an equally important part of the overall groove. It's sort of one big rhythm section. It's just that some of the rhythm section players are playing saxophones. The tightness of this band lets each arrangement that they wrote have an unusual amount of intricacies and there's this interlocking 16th note pattern underlying everything that they play and it advances this style of aggressive percussive funk which was perfected five or six years earlier by James Brown and the JBs and pushed along by Tower of Power which introduced more technical elements rhythmically and also more complex harmony. (laughs) 
So let's start where else but with this song's basic groove, which I guess is anything but basic. It's actually a pretty technical funk groove for the era, but it is basic in that it's pretty steady for most of the song. Soul Vaccination is in the key of D minor, and it mostly just sticks to a D minor chord. There are some variations in the horn figures, and there's a bridge that drops a step to C minor for a bit, but really it's just in D minor. It's not that harmonically complex of a song by Tower of Power standards, which is good since it'll let us focus entirely on the way this band grooves. This intro figure is a good way to start talking about Tower of Power's rhythm, and in particular, their approach to syncopation. Now, I've talked about syncopation in the past on the show, but for our intents and purposes, syncopation means anything that places a lot of emphasis on upbeats as opposed to downbeats. So if the pulse is here, bop, 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 that's the downbeat. Three, four, one, two, three, four. That's kind of where your foot will tap if you're keeping time. Upbeats are the hits that happen in between those downbeats. So down, 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 up, down, up, down, up, down, up, one, and two, and three, and four, and. Those ands, or upbeats, are what you emphasize if you're playing more syncopated music. Now, funk music lives in syncopation, which means that a lot of figures in funk songs and funk grooves are displaced from downbeats to upbeats, which gives the music a more surprising, propulsive feeling. It's a gross oversimplification to say that rock music focuses more on downbeats and funk music focuses more on upbeats, but that's not entirely inaccurate either. Neither is better than the other one, but downbeat heavy music tends to feel more driving and grounded, while grooves and figures with a lot of up beats tend to feel more bouncy and light on their feet. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's a piano rendition of that opening horn line. It's not going to sound as cool as the Tower of Power horns, but that's not really the point. So I'm going to play it more or less the same rhythmically as they play it on the record, and I'll use this little woodblock sound just to keep track of the downbeats. So as you listen, try to pay attention to the relationship between the melody and those woodblock downbeats. Here we go. So I hope you at least picked up the feeling there. It's pretty complex rhythmically, largely because the figures that they're playing aren't just syncopated eighth note figures with upbeats and downbeats. They're syncopated 16th note figures, which means they're twice as complex, basically. They're playing four notes per downbeat, and that's what a 16th note is. So a quarter note is just bop, bop, bop bop, just downbeats, that becomes eighth notes when you start playing upbeats, bop, 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 and then when you subdivide it twice as quickly, you get sixteenth notes, bega digga, bega digga, bega digga, bega digga, and that's when you begin to get that hyper-technical machine gun-like tower of power groove, when you begin syncopating sixteenth notes. So if the tempo is one, two, three, the groove is one, two, Three, but 
That's that Tower of Power sound. Like the very first hit is a 16th note upbeat right here. It's syncopated from the very beginning. So now let me illustrate this by drawing a contrast for you. Here's me playing that same melody on the piano with those same notes, but I've reworked the rhythm to be super downbeat heavy with basically no syncopation. So I'll keep the time on the woodblock again. Listen again to the relationship between the melody and the woodblock. Here we go. emphasize the downbeats this riff kind of rocks like all right (laughs) okay so that was fun but i also hope that it underlined how syncopation plays a role in different styles of music and how it isn't inherently good or bad rock music especially harder kind of sludgier rock it isn't generally all that syncopated its emphasis is on downbeats and that emphasis makes the music feel heavy it feels rooted in the earth in the depths of the sea tower of power is going for something very different their constant embrace of that rat-a-tat 16th note syncopation is central to their whole rhythmic approach it's just pure 16th notes Now, like I said, every single member of Tower of Power has bonkers time, and they're all able to fire off those 16th note figures with the precision of a handmade Oakland timepiece. It's particularly impressive with that horn section because, well, horns have always just had a little bit more leeway when it comes to time, and I really can think of no more rhythmically tight horn section than the Tower of Power horns. But there are two members of this band that act as a crucial foundation for all of that syncopated grooving that's going on band-wide. Those two people are bassist Rocco Prestia and drummer Dave Garibaldi. So I want to start with Garibaldi because he fits in with funk drumming in a way that we've actually talked about recently on Strong Songs. So last year on my episode about three grooves that defined funk music, I think I called it Strong Grooves Volume 1 at the time, my buddy Russ Kleiner, the same guy who was in Tower of Power Ensemble with me, he took me through some of the classic drum grooves that Clyde Stubblefield played with James Brown in the late 1960s and how those grooves paved the way for the more advanced technical playing of 70s drummers like Bernard Purdy, Jeff Porcaro, Dennis Chambers, and Dave Garibaldi, to name a few. That episode was really fun, and if you're into this kind of stuff at all, you should definitely go listen to it if you didn't. Russ and I talked more about Stubblefield than we were actually able to fit into that episode, and I wound up taking his description of some subsequent Stubblefield grooves and making them into this mini Patreon bonus episode that I'm actually probably going to put in the main feed at some point here, because I'd actually just like everybody to hear it, and I want to reference it on the main feed. So I'll drop that in the feed at some point. But for now, I just want to go through some of those grooves so you can hear how Stubblefield specifically specifically evolved his drum playing over the course of the late 1960s. It started with Cold Sweat in 1967. 
Then he accelerated it and evolved it a little further with "I Got the Feelin'" in 1968. Then he moved the snare drum around and added some more ghost notes for Mother Popcorn a year later in 1969. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, just in time for the 1970s, came the mother of all sampled drum breaks, Funky Drummer, recorded in 1970. So Clyde Stubblefield is just one drummer, albeit a very funky one. <laughs> But his evolution might give you a sense of how funk drumming was evolving and complexifying from the 1960s into the 1970s. A lot of that evolution involved the snare drum, specifically displacing the hits on the snare drum and adding what are called ghost notes or quiet, more subtle hits on the snare drum that sort of tie the groove together in a subtle but still noticeable way. If we're talking about my patented strong songs thump pop sizzle groove breakdown, the thump is the kick drum, the pop is the snare drum, and the sizzle is the hi hat. A lot of what was happening in funk drumming involved the pop, that snare drum. Garibaldi and those other '70s drummers that I mentioned earlier—they took things beyond that, and they began to get into displacing and syncopating all three aspects of the groove to the point where some of those advanced technical funk grooves from the '70s and into the '80s are unrecognizable compared with a simple '60s fatback groove. And listening to Dave Garibaldi's grooves can really feel that way. The guy was doing some groundbreaking stuff on the drum set. Soul Vaccination is a great example of how he approached the drums. And the really cool stuff that he was doing. So let's dig into his playing a little bit, and I can show you what I'm talking about. The nice thing is that when Russ was recording drum grooves for that James Brown episode, he also recorded his rendition of Garibaldi's Soul Vaccination groove. So now I want to recreate that rhythm section groove from the verse because it's the fundamental groove of the song, and it gives a good sense of this band's tightness and rhythmic sophistication. So I'm going to start with Russ's drumming as the foundation. So first, just listen to that drum part as he plays it. So far from the steady backbeat of rock and roll or even previous funk recordings, it almost sounds more like salsa music. Just count the quarter notes: one, two, three, four. It's a pretty cool-sounding drum part on its own, but it also sounds kind of unusual because it only really makes sense when it's part of the greater whole of the song, and that's actually the whole key to Garibaldi's drumming. As technical and impressive as they are, all of his drum parts are built around figures that incorporate and allow space for the other musicians in the band. That could be the rest of the rhythm section, in this case, Conti's guitar, Byers' hand drums, and Rocco's bass playing, and it also means the horns, whose figures are often accounted. 
accounted for in Garibaldi's drum parts, certainly on Soul Vaccination. It's the first and most crucial part of how every Tower of Power song works as an ensemble. Garibaldi's drumming is at the root of the whole thing, and every part, every part that he plays is written around every other part, and that's true across the whole ensemble. So in every bar, Tower of Power functions as a rhythmic organism. So let's take Russ's drum part as a given, and then I'm going to layer on the other rhythm section parts, the guitar, the bass, and the conga drum. And as we do that, I'm going to kind of point out how the drum part is designed around what each of those other instruments is playing. So first of all, we've got Rocco Prestia's bass part. It's actually pretty restrained compared to a lot of what he plays. Rocco is the master of the machine gun 16th note. He would play these just ridiculously rat-a-tat bass parts on a lot of the most famous Tower of Power songs. I actually really like his part on Soul Vaccination because there's a little bit more space to it and it fits into the overall arrangement so well. So this is what he's playing. You're hearing it underneath me. I'll just let the bass play for a second. This is Rocco's basic part on the verse. So this bass part begins with a walk up to D. It actually starts on a C and it walks up chromatically. ba ba da ba from a C up to a D. So it doesn't just start right on the root, it starts walking up to the root, which kind of fits with this groove overall. There's this feeling that it doesn't start on a solid footing. Boom, stop, boom, stop. It doesn't have that strong beginning. It kind of stutter steps its way in. You're kind of off balance right from the start, and the drums and the bass both do that. Listen to what Garibaldi is playing, and I'll pan Russ is playing to the left a little bit because the drums are panned to the left a little bit on this recording. And now listen to what Rocco is playing. They're both right there at the beginning, emphasizing that stutter step feeling. Just in different ways because they're different instruments. So now listen to them together and listen for that. Try to hear how they're working together. It's so musical in that way that a bass player and a drummer who trust one another can be. The bass leaves space and the drums fill it in. So we've got the bottom two floors of this funk tower built. Now let's set up the main level. Bruce Conti's guitar part fits beautifully with the bass and the drums. He's playing this classic funk chicken scratch kind of thing. A lot of muted strings with the pick scratching along them. He's almost entirely playing on upbeats and it sounds like this. So that's another part that sounds fine on its own, but it makes a different kind of sense when you fit it into the overall arrangement. So at the start of the phrase, remember the bass and the drums are unified on that stutter step. They both kind of play that and emphasize that. But after that, listen to what the drum part does. There's a double hit on the hi-hat. You hear that? Right here. So Conti's guitar part lines up exactly with the drums there. On the guitar, he does a little slide on the neck. And it lines up exactly with that drum hit. Listen to just the drums and the guitar now with no bass, and pay attention for that little double hit where the two parts line up. Here we go. 
You hear it? When you take it all together, I hope you can picture this. It's like the drums are dancing back and forth between the bass and the guitar. First, the drums and the bass line up for those opening stutter notes. And then on those two hits, the guitar and the drums line up. The three parts continue to move back and forth and back and forth throughout the tune. And it's so cool. So that just leaves the conga drums as played by Brent Byers. The congas are a more steady groove on this song, like this. And I don't actually own conga drums, so I'm doing my best with some samples here. There aren't really any complex recurring figures. The congas are more of a steady thing, but they're a key to the energy level of the song. They're super hot in the mix, just popping away over there in the right channel, and they basically grab this groove that's been established by the bass drums and the guitar, and they just crank the whole thing up to a new level of intensity. It's a good example, another good example of many I've talked about on this show, but a good example of the power of auxiliary percussion when you take an already good drum set part and you crank it up with some additional percussion. So I hope that this is giving you a sense of why I say that Tower of Power is unusual in how important each individual member of the band is. Like, that's true of every band, but it's particularly true of Tower of Power. This little rhythm section breakdown is actually a microcosm for everything that this band does, and I hope that gives you a sense of why that's the case. Their arrangements account for every player, and that means that every member of the band needs to be listening super closely to their bandmates and just nailing their parts, executing perfectly, and that's what they do song after song after song. So let's go through that whole groove recreation, starting with my parts and then segueing into the actual recording, and I want you to keep your your ears open for all of the things that we just talked about. That stuttery bass line that walks up to that first downbeat, that funky syncopated guitar part, and how both parts match up with different hits on the drum part, and how the conga drums just sort of bust out these steady 16th notes in order to hold the whole thing together and boost the energy level of the song. All right, ears on, here we go. While we've built the basement and the main floor of our little funk tower, well, we still gotta talk about the top floors and the penthouse suite. And with Tower of Power, that means we gotta talk about the vocals and we gotta talk about the horns. So let's start with the vocals, which actually means talking about the horns, because horn players in Tower of Power are also singers. The Tower of Power horns serve a dual function in the band. They play the horn figures when the music calls for it, but they're also all really good singers, and so they perform as a sort of a choir that acts in a call and response with the lead vocalist in this iteration of the band, that's Lenny Williams, and Williams, his vocal leads will leave space for the horns' backup choir 
to fill in the gaps. And they're actually functioning pretty similarly to how they function when they have their horns in their mouths and they're playing. They're just singing lyrics and singing in harmony. Listen to the second verse and keep that in mind. All the backup vocal parts that you're hearing are being sung by the horn section. So first, Williams will sing a lead part, and then he'll get out of the way. So it's all very carefully choreographed as the vocal part bounces back and forth between the solo lead and the backup choir, and it gets even more intricate once the horn figures start coming in, because bear in mind, as this horn figure here comes in on the refrain, the horns are singing the title of the song, Soul Vaccination, and then they're playing this bomber riff, and then singing Soul Vaccination. So you have to be ready to go back and forth really quickly between those two things, and those vocal parts aren't easy. They're not just yelling them out. They're singing really well with a nice blend and good harmony. So they're just jumping back and forth like it's nothing, but I've played this music live and I can tell you that it's a lot harder than you might think. You have to shift pretty quickly in some of these arrangements between blowing out through your horn and singing vocal parts in harmony. It makes that aspect of Tower of Power much more impressive and it's something that you'll hear across almost every Tower of Power song once you know what you're listening to and what it actually means. So now let's zoom out and get more into the broader ensemble and what the horns are doing on this arrangement, because it's finally time for the bridge. It's a pretty cool bridge and it marks a shift in the song where the arrangement gets more complex and the horns step more to the front. Like I mentioned before, it's the one place in the song where the harmony changes. It goes down to a C minor for a few bars, but really it's all about the groove and how this bridge flips the beat and throws the listener off. This whole thing is actually in steady 4-4 time, and you can count through it. We'll do it in a minute, but you have to be ready for the new groove, which emphasizes one to an unusual extent, and they purposefully try to throw you off as they transition into the bridge. So the easiest way to find your footing rhythmically is to listen to Rocco's bass line. Once they get into the steady groove on that bridge, he drops four even eighth notes right on the one. Kind of like that. The thing is, he doesn't play for the first few beats at the start of the bridge, and he skips the first downbeat on the first bar after he comes back in, deliberately to make things a little bit rhythmically confusing. But once you have your head around this groove, like here, let's loop it. Two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Once 
once you get that into your head, it becomes a little bit easier to find your footing once that groove comes in on the bridge. And then you really just kind of have to count in your head and trust that they're going to land there. Here, let's count that transition into the bridge so you can start to hear it a little more clearly. Two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And then just like that, we're back to the intro riff, which recenters things on the baseline verse groove just in time for Lenny Pickett's sax solo. Lenny Pickett, the great Lenny Pickett, was just 19 years old when he joined Tower of Power, a funky young tenor sax player from East Bay, best known these days as the band leader of the Saturday Night Live band, where he has spent decades at this point playing those legendary screaming high tenor sax solos for millions of people at the start and during the commercial breaks of every episode of Saturday Night Live. Even if you didn't know that you've heard Lenny Pickett playing a sax solo, chances are at some point in your life you've heard him screeching out those incredible solos week after week, first as the lead tenor in G.E. Smith's Saturday Night Live band, and then from the mid-90s onward as the band leader. And I gotta say, given that he has to play the same solo week after week after week, he's really got it down to an art form. So these days, Lenny Pickett is famous as a master of altissimo, those super, super high notes. Altissimo is the name for the register of a woodwind that's above the standard range of the instrument. You can access altissimo with a combination of embouchure pressure and air support. I have an okay altissimo on saxophone. I'm definitely not Lenny Pickett. He's kind of the gold standard for that specific kind of wailing, screaming, funky R&B saxophone. He wasn't playing nearly as stratospheric back in 1973 but he sounds pretty great on this track. He's doing something a little different that I think actually works really well with the recording and with my overall understanding of Tower of Power and how Tower of Power solos work. And I mean, he sounds a lot better than I did when I was 19. What I really like about this solo is how resolutely groovy it is. He's playing as much like a drummer as he is like a saxophonist. He's channeling the more kind of percussive heart attacks and jumpy phrases in the vein of a saxophonist like the great Maceo Parker, James Brown's one-time saxophonist and king of funk saxophone, especially this kind of punchy, popping funk style. It's an improvised solo, but it's a very different kind of improvisation from some of the jazz solos that I've talked about on my more jazz-focused episodes in the past. The ensemble isn't really doing very much listening and improvising in response to what Pickett's playing. They're kind of just banging along. They're spitting out time. He's spitting out time right there with them. He's just adding a new layer of it on top with improvised rhythms. And when there are a few sparks of interaction, it's noteworthy that it's really kind of Brent Byers' conga drums that are the most interactive element of the rhythm section. Like, listen to the conga here. Mm -hmm. 
It underlines how this whole sax solo kind of feels like a drum solo. This kind of solo was always something that I struggled with as a jazz student because I was learning all of this harmony, I had all of these licks and all of these lines, and then you had guys like Lenny Pickett and of course Maceo Parker, these funk players who would play just kind of a minor pentatonic scale, just not that many notes, and they would be so percussive, so intense, so grooving, and so inventive with those few notes that it didn't really matter what notes they were playing, it was more about the groove. It took me a long time to learn how to do that. You have to almost think less like a soloist and more like a member of a rhythm section, which just isn't something that horn players do innately or are taught to do. If you kind of back off and play less, you just have to trust that the groove is going to carry you along and that you're going to be a kind of a less central part of the ensemble. But that's what makes it work, and that's what makes this solo work. Usually when a horn section comes in behind a horn soloist, what they're playing is called backgrounds. But here, I don't really think of these as backgrounds. The horns have just joined Pickett on his same level. And when the groove gets this hot, well, you gotta cool it off with a breakdown. Okay, so this breakdown, this breakdown is just peak Tower of Power. The rhythm section is mostly out, the groove has been taken down to this low simmer, and they begin to layer parts on top of one another, focusing on the horns, creating this ever denser canvas of funk. It starts with baritone saxophonist Doc Kupka, a musician who's just as central to Tower of Power sound as any rhythm section member, and of course a co-founder of the band, along with second tenor Emilio Castillo, and co-writer or writer of a whole bunch of Tower of Power songs, including this one. There may be no band on earth that features the baritone saxophone as effectively as Tower of Power, and this is a great example of that, with Kupka kicking off this breakdown with a bass line of his own. As we go through this breakdown, though, try to keep an ear out for what the rhythm section is doing, because they aren't totally laying out. Garibaldi's hi-hat is going throughout this section, of course, but his kick drum is also getting involved. He's playing kick drum hits to line up with the first two notes of Kupka's Barry sax part every time it comes around, which makes it feel supported and a little more like an actual bass part. You hear it? Bop, bop. It's subtle, but it makes the groove really pop. I also love what Rocco plays, that little bass riff. It's hard to articulate why, but it's always been one of my favorite little riffs, kind of in any recording. Rocco would always play that when they performed this song live, though actually there was a cool addition that they made along the way somewhere to the arrangement. On the original recording, Rocco plays that riff, and then there's nothing in the next space. Like there's nothing right here. On their 1998 live record, however, guitarist Jeff Tamalier added something new. 
right here. <laughs> it's so good. I'm not sure who made the decision to add that little descending guitar part, but I love it so much. I'm weirdly obsessed with it. It's something that's been stuck in my head forever. So maybe it's just me. There's just something so perfect about taking a bass line that sounds like this and answering it with a guitar part that sounds like this. It's to the point that when I listen to this original recording, it just sounds like there's this gaping hole there where the guitar riff is supposed to be. And it's not even a bad thing. Like, it's an effective use of space. It's very confident. I've just gotten so used to hearing it the other way. So now that I've infected you with that, let me just take you through the rest of these parts, which layer on top of one another, sort of like a fugue. I mean, okay, it's not actually very much like a fugue, but it is definitely a sort of counterpoint. And I want to try to open up your ear space so that you can hear as many of the different parts at the same time as there are. So the Barry Sax is already in playing what amounts to a bass line, a pretty sparse rhythmic figure. Like a lot of the rest of the song, it's pretty syncopated. So a lot of these hits aren't happening on downbeats. So from there, the tenor saxophones come in in unison, meaning they're playing the exact same notes, the first and second tenors, and they play a counter melody that fits in perfectly with that first Barry Sax part. that first counter melody established, the tenors split from unison into harmony. So this becomes this. <laughs> I love that scoop they put on it. Tower of Power is always doing that kind of, I guess you'd call it horny stuff, for lack of a better way of describing it. Not enough horn sections do that kind of thing, though, like scooping together in perfect synchronicity. From there, it's time for the final piece of the puzzle, the final layer on the stack, as the trumpets come in with one more line that starts out layered over the other parts and then syncs up with the end of the lick. Let's put them all together. Only that's not really it, is it? That's not exactly what's happening. This is something I only really internalized when I played the tenor saxophone part myself, but that tenor sax counter melody actually flips around when the trumpets come in, and what started as this becomes this. It's hard to notice it, honestly, in the heat of the moment, because the second half of the phrase becomes the first half, and vice versa, but it's all the same phrase. But basically, instead of going, ba-da-ba-da, at first it goes, ba-da-ba-da-ba, and it puts the scoop in the first half of the phrase, and that allows it to line up better with the trumpet part. So what had been phrased this way flips around and becomes this. It's subtle, but it's the kind of thoughtful arranging that this band does so well. 
So those are the main ingredients of this breakdown added one after another until we have a delicious stew going. Too many metaphors, but you know what I'm saying. They add a lot of different ingredients and they do it very effectively. So let's listen to that entire breakdown from the start and just keep your ears open for all the different elements that I just highlighted and listen to how they fit together and how hard they all lock in together rhythmically. Here we go. section keeps layering in these little accents and pops before the trumpets take it up the octave. And just like that, the breakdown has been rebuilt and the song can continue. That's really this song. There's not that much more to it. They just keep that popping, funky groove going through a few more verses before taking it down for a long vamp out. Brent Byers gets a chance to shine on the conga before the horns come back in with the same figures they played behind Lenny Pickett's sax solo. At this point, it's just so in there. I don't know if you've ever made stovetop popcorn, but that's what this part of the song always makes me think of. This unusually large group of musicians playing all kinds of different instruments, firing tiny little explosions off of one another in perfect synchronicity. If you've ever sat down with a metronome, Tyra Power's tempos actually fluctuate, but the band members are always locked in with one another, which lets them do things like this. The band is like a wind-up toy, chattering and clanging along, and then for just a moment, the wind-up toy runs out of juice before being wound up and popping right back like nothing even happened. And let me just tell you, that kind of thing kills live. That is killer showmanship. It sounds cool in the studio, but audiences will go wild for that kind of thing. And that's something that Tower of Power evidently understood, because when they play it live, they slow the groove down even more. They do a full-on retardando all together in perfect timing to emphasize that feeling of dragging and running out of power before springing right back up where they started. And that's Tower of Power. Call them a kettle of popcorn or a chattering wind-up toy. In the end, their band name is appropriate because there's so much funky architecture in this band's sound. It's rare to see a band this big where every single musician matters this much. But from the basement all the way up to the penthouse, this Oakland Tower's got time and groove pulsing through every last brick.
And that'll do it for my analysis of Soul Vaccination by Tower of Power. I hope this gave you a better appreciation for this incredible band. It was certainly fun to make. They really are one of my favorite bands of all time. Thanks to my buddy Russ Kleiner for providing the drum example that I use for my recreations and more broadly for introducing me to the wide, wonderful world of Tower of Power and Dave Garibaldi. If you want to take that same journey, I suggest starting with their 1973 self-titled record. And then you can't go wrong with the next two albums, Back to Oakland and Urban Renewal. It's just non-stop bangers on all three of those albums. Honestly, though, with Tower of Power, you can't really go wrong. Thank you all, as always, for listening to Strong Songs. I hope you're enjoying Season 5 so far, and if you are, I hope you'll consider becoming a patron of the show over on Patreon and directly supporting the show's creation. Thank you so much to anyone who's ever been a patron of the show so far. That's a lot more people than our current patrons. It's not a lifetime commitment. I would never expect it to be, and plenty of people pledge for a little while and then stop. I appreciate anyone who's ever put some money toward helping me keep this thing going. And if you're out there and you've thought about pitching in, but you just haven't gotten around to it, well, hey, patreon.com slash strong songs. That's the place to go. As always, you can find social links, Strong Songs merch, reference notes for the episode, and much more down in the show notes, so go check that out. No outro solo this time around, but remember, you can always record your own outro solo and send it along to me. I might not play it on the show, but I might also play it on the show. We just featured an amazing one last time around, so there's a link for that also down in, you guessed it, the show notes. All right, that'll do it for me. Take care, keep listening, and I'll see you in two weeks for more Strong Songs.